I went there to fulfill a dream I've had since I was a young man to try and climb Mount Everest. I've been a climber for over three decades, and things were unfolding well, and finally had our chance to start climbing the mountain. I had, after 33 years of being a climber, I moved nine hours out of base camp, and then something monumental happened. There was a huge earthquake. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Hello, my friends. Brilliant here. Today, my guest is Jim Davidson. Jim is living proof that even more important than the goals you set for yourself, even when you achieve them, is what you become in the process. Jim summited Mount Everest, where he survived earthquakes, avalanches, and he's even escaped alone from an 80-foot deep glacial crevasse. He's a high-altitude climber and expedition leader, which he's done for more than 37 years. He was on Everest in 2015 when an earthquake happened. Didn't think he'd go back, but he did in 2017, and he summited. I read his book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. I really enjoyed this book. I learned a lot from it. And I learned a lot from this conversation. In this conversation, we talk about goal setting. We talk about time, how Jim thinks about it, how he uses it, how he organizes it to help maintain a healthy lifestyle, balance his responsibilities at work, keep his family together and strong. We talk about facing and overcoming adversity, the idea that fear is contagious, but so is confidence. Please enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Jim Davidson. Jim, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Brilliant. Jim, will you tell me, please, what is life about? I think life is about trying to do the best with what you're handed at the time and trying to help other people rise up as well. And I think we take turns lifting each other up. Mm. Jim, you have been places and returned that many people only dream of. Places people fear, places people die. April 25th, 2015. You were in Mount Everest. You were in Nepal. Correct. What happened? I went there to fulfill a dream I've had since I was a young man to try and climb Mount Everest. I've been a climber for over three decades. And things were unfolding well, and finally had our chance to start climbing the mountain. I had, after 33 years of being a climber, I moved nine hours out of base camp, and then something monumental happened. There was a huge earthquake, biggest earthquake to hit Nepal in 81 years, and that earthquake was 7.8 magnitude, and it slammed into Mount Everest and the entire Himalayan region. Amazing. That day, I understand, 19 people on the mountain died, about eight eight or 9,000 in Nepal. The devastation right. was massive. You describe this in your book, The Next Everest. Will you tell me what was it like to be there? And, and in particular, I'm curious about something you, you mentioned a couple times. You mentioned the role of luck, something that you reflected on as you were one of the lucky people who didn't die. Right. Tell me, what was that like for you to be, to be on the mountain, and how have you understood the events since? 
Well, we were at Camp 1, which is at about 19,700 feet, the first of four camps going up the mountain. The expedition had just gotten into the early phases. And when the earthquake hit, what happened was the two mountains next to us started shaking, and they let loose giant avalanches. One came down 4,000 vertical feet and washed towards us. On the other side, one came down 6,000 vertical feet and washed towards us. But those avalanches didn't quite reach us at Camp 1. And we were safe at Camp 1. No one killed. No one injured. Same thing happened up at Camp 2. They got shook up, but uh, didn't get impacted. But sadly, down at base camp, it was a different story with their avalanche. Their avalanche that hit base camp had lots of rocks in it, and lots of ice, and it just bulldozed right through the middle section of base camp. And it took out about 100 tents, sadly killed 70 people, or so, excuse me, injured 70 people or so, and killed 18 that first day and 19 later, like you said. So luck did play a role in all that. Some people were camped in a spot where they just got missed, and others were in a spot where they got impacted. And it was um, very unsettling to realize how some luck and randomness did have an impact there. But even in a tough situation, we humans can start to take action. And that's what I saw, kind of a small expanding in those first moments of avalanche at Camp 1. I was scared for myself, didn't worry about my tent mates. Then when we realized we were okay, we checked with our neighbors. And as the disaster unfolded over hours and days, kind of our circle of awareness expanded out. We were worried about people that were far away from us. So you kind of have to endure what's happening and then slowly lift your head and ask yourself, how can I help somebody else who's in a worse situation? Yeah. You write in the book that you were journaling immediately after the events and you had the presence of mind even to grab your GoPro while the avalanches were happening, which I find remarkable. But in your journal, you say you wouldn't go back. You were already processing. You weren't planning to go back. You were listing the reasons. But you did go back two years right. later, and you did summit. Why did you go back? Yeah, there were a, a couple of reasons to that. And uh, when I left base camp, I said to my climbing partner, I said, I'll probably never come back here because it was traumatic and it was terrifying. Um, and what happened was when we were in Nepal, nobody on my team was injured or killed. So we were trying to help out the Nepali people by disassembling houses. Uh, we dug through avalanche debris with our hands, literally, and a shovel to try and recover some medical supplies at a, a base camp field hospital that was overrun. So we were trying to do what we physically could. And when I came back to the States, I was lucky to be home, back with my family. And so I threw myself into doing fundraising for Nepal to raise funds to rebuild the country because so many people were affected in so many ways. And so when I did the fundraising, I was talking to people at these audiences, and they would say, well, what else can I do to Nepal to help Nepal besides write a check? And I said, well, Nepal, they're... they're primary economy is tourism because they don't have a lot of natural resources, but they have huge natural beauty. So once Nepal recovers, you should go back there. Let them know they're not forgotten. Go there with your dollars and, and your euros and help lift their economy and put them back to work so they can keep rebuilding. And after I said that many times, I thought, well, I'm advising others to go to Nepal when it's safe. Maybe, maybe I should too. Maybe I should be walking my talk. So I was a geologist for many years. And so I took a look at the stability of plates underneath Nepal, and it wasn't good. I looked at it, and I realized there's going to be more earthquakes, and they're going to be bigger. And it gave me more pause about going back. But basically, after a year, I decided that it looked like things had settled down. The aftershocks, Nepal was rebuilding. They need those outside dollars and tourists. And I still wanted to take a shot at Mount Everest, and I wanted to help put my Sherpa friends back to work. So I looked at the weight of that, and I decided I was going to go back to Nepal in 2017. Yeah, that's one of the messages that I love about this book, not only the resilience, which is probably easier to talk about than to live with, but it's also about this view of life as being bigger than oneself. 
And what, in some ways, a paradox, following a passion so intensely, and as you mentioned, for 33 years before you started climbing Everest, you'd been pursuing this, yet managing a career and a family uh, is one thing I really admired about, about your story, uh, a healthy lifestyle. It's very different from my father's, who was a, a business person so focused on making deals and you know growing a business. But... Um, what I wonder is, how did you manage the time, right? And in particular, maybe there's this one idea that you present in the book. I love how succinctly you talk about this, about almost the trade-offs or the, the paradoxes of, of youth, middle age, and old age when it comes to time. And, and even as a frame to that, perhaps, the last words your father said to you, because I understand that he passed while you were climbing Denali, if I'm, if I'm right. Correct, yeah. And so you you had reflected, you learned that he had died after you came down and you were reflecting right. on your final conversation with your dad. What did he tell you? What did he say in that conversation? Well, it was just before I left for Denali back in 2002, like you said, and uh, he was kind of, my dad was a, a construction worker and, uh, you know, kind of a tough guy from uh, a generation's past, uh, but he had a good heart. And uh, he kind of said, well, he said, I didn't know regular guys like us could go off and chase adventure around the world. And he said a little bit wistfully, like he wished he had. And I said to him that I could do those things because of the important things he taught me working by his side as a young man when I learned how to work on dangerous construction jobs with my dad and to be safe and to watch out for the rest of the team. And so it was kind of like a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little bit of a regret on his side that he didn't do it, but also a slight compliment to me, I think, that I was out there doing it. And so when my dad passed away, I realized that uh, I was fortunate that I got that upbringing and I was able to go to these places. And so that's been somewhat fuel for me through the years is to, to honor the things he taught me and things that other people have done to teach me and help me that if I can do something big to try and lift myself up and help others along the way, uh, that's playing at my highest level, being the best version of me that I can be. So I've kept pursuing the adventuring while still trying to do, like you said, to balance it with a career and family. Your father sounds like he was a really amazing man. And, Thank you. and I love the way that you interpret that, right? Because just reading it on a page, it's easy for me to think someone could interpret that as a criticism, right? Like I didn't know regular people like us could go chase adventure, but that's part of what I love is that regular people like us can. And to hear you interpret the way your dad was saying that to you was um, in a sense of encouragement, right? Or something like that. And then as you reflect on, you know, the decision to climb Everest, and we know it's not just the time away, but it's the training and the preparation, right? We, a lot of people who want to undertake an Ironman, <laughs> their partner right. or family feels this kind of similar effects perhaps. But this is where I now want to ask you about these, these kind of three stations in life in which we find ourselves and the, and the costs and benefits of each and how you right. use that to understand and make the decision to go. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, what we're talking about here is when you're young, say your 20s, maybe in your 30s, you have time and you have energy, but you don't have the extra money to go out and do what you want to do. And then you get into middle age and now you've got some money and you still got the energy because you're still pretty fit at 40, 45, but you don't have the time because you're in mid-career and busy with a family for a lot of us. Then you get to be older in your retirement years. You've got the time now, uh, you've got the money, but you don't have the energy anymore. And I thought about this a lot when I was in my 40s and trying to get into expedition climbing. I thought, this is unsolvable paradox. I've, I always have two of the three things I need. And then I realized, well, what that means is you're going to have to push a little bit harder and organize your life to see if you can 
get it from two out of three to maybe two and a half out of three. And if I can get it to two and a half out of three, that's got to be the green light. That's the most it's ever going to be because I'm never going to get all three out of three. And I don't want to get to be 90 years old and look back. So in my middle years, when I had energy and some money, I realized I had to create some time. So I started slicing extraneous things out of my life. I dropped a lot of hobbies. I looked for little ways to save time. I learned to go on less sleep. And uh, I would train in off hours when my kids were asleep. Or the, one day I'd be training at five in the morning before they got up. The next night I'd go to the gym at 9.30 at night after they'd gone to bed. So it's a juggling act and it's not easy, but it was trying to create the resources I needed to try and chase that dream while still meeting my responsibilities. Yeah, I, I love that view and the that balance of the the logic, but also what must have been the emotion underneath it, the passion, you know, the desire, that kind of thing. But really looking at life in a way that gives you an empowering meaning to this and not just living for someday as so many people do. Like I said at the very beginning, that many people dream of what you're doing, but very, very few people ever do it. And what an inspiration. Um, I want to ask, well, it, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I, I, well, I was inspired in part by, my, my dad lived to be 69 years old, which is a reasonable old age, but um, one of my uncles passed away early, or my foreman did, one of my good climbing friends, and they had worked real hard and didn't get a chance to live to be old enough to try and seize that retirement dream. And that was kind of fuel for me the whole way uh, was, you know, you've got to grab some of those things you want in life as you go, because I don't know, I maybe get hit by a bus when I'm 50 or something bad will befall me when I'm 60. So you might not get there. So you better grab some of the good things that you want along the way, but also recognition you're going to have to make some sacrifices elsewhere. So that's, there's no magic formula, but it is a tricky balance. But if you've got that dream, something that can turn you into a better version of you, do what's necessary. Drop television or drop movies or whatever you need to drop to get the time and energy to chase that dream. So the thing, oh, and we were talking about you had made this decision to stop shaving, recognizing right. that it would save you five minutes a day. A few, a few years later, you realized if you stopped washing your car, you would save 30 minutes a week. Correct. And probably benefit the environment a bit as well. Correct. And over those decades of not shaving daily and not washing your car every week, that you figure you earned yourself enough time to do a 60 day expedition. Is that, is that right? Would you add or clarify anything to what I've said? No, you, you got it. Exactly. I'm a scientist. I'm a numbers guy. And when I crunched it out, I thought I have literally saved enough time from these minor chores to offset and literally go on a 60 day expedition. Uh, that, uh, that was kind of a a nice come together for me because I still want to go on the expedition no matter what, but I literally realized that just picking my priorities and shedding the things that didn't seem important allowed just a little bit more time each day to, to do what I wanted. And that, that was what I did. That's amazing. Well, and there's also this thing too about the cost, right? Because like everything, there's two, there's two sides to every coin, two, two uh, sides to every sword, right? The sword, yep. the knives cut both ways. And you went, you summited, I understand you lost 22 pounds, which most people would celebrate. But for you, that actually represented an increase in your body fat percentage from 12% to 18%. How does that happen? I was shocked too. Um, I was 54 years old when I went to Everest the second time. I got in the best shape of my life. I got so thin that my climbing partners and my wife were like, you're getting a little too obsessed with this weight loss gym. And I'm like, no, I'm going to get down thin and I'm going to get lean and mean best muscle mass ever had, went to the mountain, lost 22 pounds, like you said. And when I came home and saw my trainer, I was even skinnier. And we both said, oh, this is going to be fun. 
a fat test on you and see where you're at. And I'd been like 12 or 13% before I left. She tested me when I came back, and the first reading was 18, and we thought, well, that must be wrong. And we did check the second spot on my body, a third, and they were 18 and 18 as well. What happened is I lost two pounds of fat and 20 pounds of muscle. Wow. So as a result, I became, on a percentage basis, fatter after climbing Mount Everest than before I went there. That is amazing. Unthinkable. And, and not only was it an increase, right, but, but the way you write about it in the book, that that represented literally years of training and conditioning. That basically that effort and the toll that climbing Everest took, that was a cost that it extracted from you in a very real way. Years, years of training and building muscle. Oh, absolutely. It takes years to put on that kind of muscle, especially when you're in your mid-50s like, like I was then. Uh, I mean, it's, it takes a huge toll on your body and your psyche. Uh, sometimes you'll hear in the news, oh, climbing Everest is easy. You're just hiking up the hill following uh, everybody else. But it's quite difficult. I mean, I've been climbing for 30 some odd years. And it took away years of my muscle and I felt pretty beat up when I came home. Yeah, that's incredible. Was it worth it? Yes. And it was worth it, not because I stood on the summit, but because I engaged with the challenge and followed it to the end. Because me standing on the summit, um, that certainly didn't change the world. And I don't even think it even changed me very much at all. It was just a few fleeting minutes out of 35 years of mountaineering. And then I had to do the, the dangerous descent. So I was only up there for like 15 minutes max. Uh, so as a result, why go through it? Well, I think it was picking that big challenge and trying to create myself into someone that can rise up to the challenge. That was the real benefit, not just standing on the summit. Uh, and so I think that's the real lesson that I've learned from mountaineering that I've put into the book, The Next Everest, is by picking that challenge and trying to rise up to it, that's the benefit for you whether the challenge is mountaineering or meditation or music or marathons, pick something that speaks to you and strive for it. Yeah, I love that. And on the very last page of the book, I love the way you, you frame it there too. When you say, for me, it was essential to pick high goals and then craft myself into becoming big enough to reach them. Such a wonderful perspective. And, and to your Thanks. point of people thinking maybe this is easy, right? I mean, you shared some things that were really, um, they were expanding, mind expanding for me about someone you had heard speak who had been at altitude, took his gloves off to take a photograph, just to take a photograph and got frostbite and lost eight fingertips. Yes, and he was a professional climber and a professional photographer. So losing those eight fingertips was a brutal impact to his life and his, and his uh, you know, the way he made his living. And it was just literally a momentary lapse uh, for a very wise climber. And so that really put a fear into me that there's no room for error up there at 26 or 29,000 feet. Yeah. And, and you also talk about, um, things like people's corneas freeze on summit on the night before summiting the temporarily freeze, yep. or of course people die. And you talk about 280 people have died climbing that mountain at least that many that we know of. Right. And right. on right. your way up and down, you passed some of those bodies. Most certainly did. Uh, I know from reading many of his stories in both uh, books and magazines, I knew some of those dead bodies were up there. Um, if we can't, uh, other climbers uh, before me could not always move them out of the way. They try and put them in a, a, a secluded spot out of respect, but it's just too risky to bring those bodies down to such a huge altitude. So uh, many of those who passed away are still up there. And when you're climbing the upper part of the mountain, uh, usually you encounter them. That's amazing. Well, I've got a lot of respect for you, not only for, for doing it, but for 
for what I see as the motives that uh, have moved you. I love what you say in the book about I climb to seek awe and, and for yeah. the way you share this and you encourage others to develop their resilience, follow their passions. What, let me ask you this before we transition to the, to the other part of this interview. So yep. this book, The Next Everest, what do you hope readers take away? What I hope they take away most is to realize a little bit what we've been talking about, which is uh, to pick those big goals. It, you, you'll know if your goal is really grand because it should scare you uh, and make you think, I don't know if I can do that. If you pick a simple goal, you're not going to learn that much from it. You're not going to change. So if you pick a big goal and it makes you nervous, that's probably the right goal for you. And now the question is, how are you going to get there? And also, as we discussed, it's not just finishing that marathon, playing that perfect piece of music, standing on the summit. Those are all just nice little rewards at the end. It's the process of refining yourself into a better version of you. That's how we become more resilient for ourselves. And I think even more important, make ourselves into a more resilient version so we can help lift up others when they're having a down day a down year during a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think the most important thing is just to lift yourself up and then lift up others. Well, thank you. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. All right. Sounds great. All right. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a um, mixed bouquet of flowers. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing technologist Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That you have to keep pushing yourself in order to refine yourself. I think people tend to pull back a little bit. They don't want to push themselves. So I I think the secret to succeeding long-term is to push yourself. Mm. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Keep moving forward. All right. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Uh, that would be Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. Uh, it was a mountaineering book and had great lessons for me. Mm. What's one lesson that stands out to you from that book? that even when it seems utterly impossible, that logic would dictate there's no way it can be done, there are ways to solve these overwhelming problems. Beautiful. Okay, question number five. So you travel a ton. You've been around this planet. What, what travel hack, meaning you know, what piece of advice, something you do or something you take with you when you travel, do you follow to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Bring a toothbrush and a change of socks and shirt. So no matter what happens in the travel mishap, you can have a little pause and refresh moment, and that lifts you up ready for the next set of challenges, whether you're stuck at an airport or stuck without your bag somewhere in the Himalayas. Yeah. I'll bet your traveling companions appreciate that, too. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you're right. Yeah. Okay, question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing? Uh, Stop getting mad at the news on TV. Hmm. And how did you manage to stop that? I stopped watching the news. I'm not completely. I watch far less, but I, I try and watch national news for a few minutes a day to be aware of what's going on. And once this, the news repeats itself, I shut it off and then move on with my life. Mm. All right. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? 
the value of just stepping outside and getting some exercise in the sunshine. Mm. Yes. Okay. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? That it's uh, like saving money. If you want to have some money later, you need to save a little bit as you go. If you want to have relationships and, and support later on, you've got to invest that time in other people. So help other people with whatever they're doing, and maybe they'll be there to help you later on when you need some help. All right. And question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Money comes and goes. Um, you have to meet your bills. Uh, but even when something unexpected happens and you have to put out some money to solve a problem, you won't remember that amount of money even in a few years from now. So use your money to solve problems, make your life and the lives around you better, and the money will just be gone and life will be a little bit better. Yeah, thank you for that. And I just want to go a little deeper on this one because as you mentioned in this interview, when you returned, you spent quite a long time doing fundraising for Nepal. Right. So specifically related to money, what have you learned when it comes to fundraising? That if you start to put in effort, other people will join in. Uh, one person has an idea, somebody joins in, and now we're starting to build momentum. And so that's what you need to do, just be a little enthusiastic. And sometimes you have to take the first step. And other times, if you see someone else taking the first step, put your shoulder to the wheel behind them. And that's how we can get uh, a big buildup of energy and a bigger buildup of money for good purposes. I love that. Reminds me of another uh, line in the book where you talk about fear is contagious, but so is confidence. It's kind of that, that idea. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Okay. So I do have a few, few more questions about writing and the creative process before we, before we sign off. But before we get there, um, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Uh, They can find me online. Uh, My website is speakingofadventure.com. I'm on all the social medias and whatnot. And uh, just put the book out. It's coming out April 20th, and people can read that and learn some of the lessons that I've learned through all these years of adventuring. Awesome. And because this video will probably outlive all of us, um, we're talking about 2021. So almost certainly by the time you've seen this video, the book will be out and available. And I, I highly recommend you pick it up, learn a lot about yourself and learn a lot about the world. And especially if you have a passion for climbing or adventure or just expanding your, your sense of possibility. I think you really love this book. Um, also I want to be sure Jim to let you know that as a way of expressing gratitude to you, I've done two things. Um, one is I have gone online and I've made a micro loan to an entrepreneur in Cambodia. So there's a lady named Lev. She's 37 years old. She's a rice farmer. She earns about two us dollars a day. So this loan for which I won't earn any interest, it'll go to fund the operations in her country of, of these loan makers but she'll use this money to purchase a tractor. So in some way, um, wow. I like to think our conversation's doing good. And uh, even when we're, you know, not necessarily aware of it or, or we'll never. That's, that's, that's fantastic. I literally have goosebumps right now. Thank yeah. you for that gesture. Uh, but more importantly, thank you for helping her out yeah. because that will help her feed her family and her community and help lift herself up. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I've also, I was inspired by your fundraising and your connection to Nepal um, I've actually had the chance to visit Nepal myself a year and a half ago, and I love, love the country. Definitely will go back. 
So I went to an organization called HimalayanLife.com. I didn't know them before, but I checked out their site. They look pretty legit and like they're doing some good work in the country. They say they're providing comprehensive care to street children and abandoned children. And they're also touching a a range of lives through school and community-based programs. So I made a hundred dollar donation to them on your behalf as well. Thank you very much. That, that is a huge help that goes a long ways in Nepal. And uh, the, the young children who don't have somebody to care for them is a big problem there. So thank you for helping with that. Yeah. You've inspired me. Okay. Last part of the interview then is about, as I said, writing and creativity. Um, so where do we start? Where do we start? How, do, how, about, um, how about this? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about writing in the course of writing this book? 400 pages. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I had done a lot of writing before as a scientist. And so when I first started writing in a creative nonfiction way, sharing my adventure stories, I first started writing, uh, sharing scientific facts. I would, I would talk about how many meters to the next ledge and how many pounds of equipment and how many feet of rope. And it was probably quite boring, actually. It was a bunch of numbers because I came from a science background. And then I realized it's not about those facts. It's about the human experience. Take people on a trip, show them what it's like to be in a place like Nepal or Mount Everest. So I tried to start, start sharing that human experience. And I realized that's where the power of the storytelling is. And that's really what people want to connect with. Exactly how high the mountain is and how many miles. Ah, don't forget that pretty quickly. So that's what writing taught me was you've got to share that human experience. That will pull people in and they'll go with you on the journey. What was the moment you knew you were going to write this book? Uh, I think it's when I came back from Nepal the second time. The first time I was there in the quake, I felt as a geologist, I should share the experience of what happened on the ground with the earthquake. And then when I went back to Nepal and managed to see how the country had picked itself up some and how things I had learned through my decades of climbing and through the earthquake had reinforced and allowed me to do a better job at going back to Everest the second time, I realized that's the real story. It's the quake is amazing. The climbing is kind of fun to read about, but it's really that story about picking yourself up, picking others up and trying to move forward despite the difficulties like earthquakes and pandemics. I realized that was the real power of the story. And it took me about a few months until after I came back from Everest in 2017. that I realized that was the story I needed to share. Wow. As a practical matter, how did you get the book written? Like, how did you organize your life? How did you manage your time? What technology did you use? What was your process, your structure, like this kind of thing? Because this is not easy, right? I mean, clearly you've made a life of doing things that aren't easy, but how did you do this? Yeah, everybody finds their own way, but you're hinting at the big factors, which is you have to structure your life to put aside that time. I occasionally see these things online, write your book in a weekend, write your book in a week, and I'm like, I wish that would work for me, but I don't think it does. Um, so I had to restructure my life to basically move writing from, let's say, priority number 10 up to priority number two, and sometimes even priority number one. So I had to restructure my life a little bit. I, I climbed a little less. I certainly did far less television and movies and things like that. So that's how I carved out the time. The process, again, is different for everyone, but I try to write first from my memory and from my heart. So I just shared what the story as I carry it inside myself as I remember it and as I felt it. And then I went back and I'm still a, I'm still a scientist. I sometimes say that uh, I learned how to write as a scientist. And so I'm a recovering scientist when it comes to my, my storytelling and my writing, I still tend to drift towards that, but I wanted to get it right. So I went back and did a little fact checking on myself. I looked at my journals, my emails, my GPS um, 
tracking, um, all that kind of stuff to get my facts and dates and figures right. And that's how I get the first draft down. And then it's an endless process of revising for month after month, draft after draft. Yeah, that, that can be very discouraging. And I think where a lot of people kind of give up. But what for you was the most challenging part of getting the book written and published? And how did you overcome it? Uh, uh, getting the book written was just a matter of, the, the hard part was probably not giving up in the middle, kind of like you hinted at there. I was two thirds of the way through and I was tired. I'd been writing the book for a year and a half and uh, to the end still was in sight. So not giving up in the middle, kind of like climbing Everest or running a marathon or playing difficult music. If you give up two thirds of the way through, you've locked in that give up. If you push forward, even if it's slow, you still keep pushing forward, you can still make the finish line. So that was probably the hardest part about writing. The hardest part about getting it out there was uh, keeping the, you know, it's, there's some logistics in trying to decide if you want an agent to help you or not. Do you want a traditional publisher to help you or not? There's some tough decisions to be made there with your time and your skills and, and money as well. So, and it's different calculation for everyone, but uh, you just have to trust that you're going to wade through these decisions one at a time. And there are literally probably scores and scores, maybe hundreds and hundreds of small decisions to make. But if you just don't give up in the middle, you will wind up with a product that other people want to read and that you'll be proud of. Yeah, that's great. What do you think is the best investment you ever made as a writer or in anything that's helped you to be more effective as a writer? Yeah, I think it's taking a variety of classes from other more experienced people. Um, I took uh, classes and still taking classes now for literally 15 years or more to work on my writing skills. I go to conferences. I will take classes certainly within my area. I've taken a lot of memoir classes and about place and setting but also taking classes that seemed way off track for me, how to do interviews, how to write poetry. I'm a, I'm a terrible poet. Uh, but by taking those classes, I picked up little tidbits that they use and I pulled them back into my writing. So learning a, a variety of skills from other people far outside your norm and then bringing them back to your space where you work, where you write. I think that's how you lift yourself up and add a little spice and interest to your writing as well. Yeah, Absolutely. You even include a bit of poetry in this one, a few lines. Um, yes, yes. Uh, like I say, I'm, I'm a terrible poet, but uh, uh, poetry did pop up when we were on Denali. A friend of mine was reading some poems to us about the wilderness, and, and they, they not only resonated with me then on the mountain, uh, later on when I had difficulties in my life, my dad had passed away. Those lines really spoke to me, so they, they made it into the book. I guess proving what we're talking about. A little bit of spice from somewhere else can, yep. can raise the quality of your writing. Yeah, absolutely. Who, as a teacher from any period in your life has been influential for you as a writer and what have you learned from them? Uh, probably the most important one of this book is my recent writing teacher, BK Lauren. Uh, she taught me how to look at uh, the structure of a book and the structure of life a little bit differently. As a scientist, I tend to think logically and literally and everything. And she said that uh, time is, you know, it's a sort of an organizing principle, but it doesn't have to be the driving force. The things are driven by emotion. So I encourage your readers, readers to look into B.K. Lawrence. She's a great writing teacher. She's got a great novel out there and, and more coming because it basically just sort of reset my mind about how you tell a story in a fashion that's followable but pulls in the most important components. Uh, B.K., capital letters, last name Lauren, L-O-R-E-N. B.K. Lauren, right on. Well, great. Well, what advice or encouragement do you offer others who either they have a dream of writing and publishing their own book, or maybe they're stuck in the messy middle somewhere. What, 
What advice or encouragement do you give them to help them maybe get started, but perhaps even more importantly to finish? Yeah. Uh, never give up, keep moving forward and be brave. And the be brave part is about being brave about how you put yourself into the world to show your vulnerabilities and your flaws and your mistakes and to be brave about the story you're telling. Awesome. Well, Jim, I feel like we've covered so much and I know there's so much more that we could, we could talk about before we wrap up. Let me just ask you, what haven't we talked about that you want to talk about, or you think might benefit someone listening, whether it's related to writing and creativity or, or life in general or climbing or anything. Yeah. I think one thing I think would hopefully resonate with your listeners and your readers and your followers is the concept of post-traumatic growth. Um, I learned this one the hard way. I lost a good climbing friend in the mountains. I struggled for a long time. And I took a look at that and realized I could not change that traumatic thing. My friend was gone, and I had to find a way to live with that. But over the years, over the decades, I learned to pull some strength out of that and use it as fuel in my life. I thought to myself, my friend is gone. What would he advise me? Should I try Everest for the first time? Should I go back a second time? And that traumatic things, they, they happen to all of us in this last pandemic here, traumatic things have arguably happened to all of us in our personal lives, in our work lives, in our communities. So traumatic things are bad. We can't turn back the clock. But the trick is to look at that and say, what can I take from that? Some wisdom, some strength, some knowledge to go forward and actually grow. So instead of just being traumatized, we can grow from the trauma, post-traumatic growth. I think there's a lot of power there. Uh, it doesn't make the trauma easier to live with always, but you can use those good things and those bad things that happen as fuel to move your life hopefully forward and upward. And that's one of the messages I shared in the book is that we have to make ourselves more resilient for the next challenge, the next opportunity, the next Everest. Yeah, I love that. And, and I appreciate that. And I'm so glad you brought that up. And I was curious about this because sometimes simply knowing that something is possible, it makes it findable, it makes it accessible, right? Like I have a teacher who talks about what you don't know like what you're unaware of does not exist for you in essence. Right. And, and so knowing that post-traumatic growth is a possibility for people, I hope can help them begin to experience that. But I also suspect, and this comes from years of coaching that there's a lot of things again, that are easy to talk about where they sound nice in theory, but where this, where I'm going with this is I'm asking, you know, how do we achieve it? Right. And I think there's a lot of things in life that are easy. Again, they're easy to talk about something like forgiveness. <laughs> right, right. Right. But when it comes, what, what have you learned from your own experience that you would offer others to help them start to shift what they might be experiencing as post-traumatic stress disorder to a post-traumatic growth? Yeah. I, I think you, yeah, you hit a key mark there, which is that it's possible. Yeah. It is not easy. Yeah. It is not fast and it is not complete. Post-traumatic growth is not some magic flip of a switch or attitude that you get and the trauma doesn't bother you anymore. The trauma still happens and the post-traumatic stress may still be part of your life, but the growth is possible. And the same is true for the pandemic. The world has changed and gotten worse in a lot of ways, but it's possible to not only go back and get back some of those things we had before, but add on some better things, some new ways of looking at things. So uh, I think it's whether you're picking a big goal or recovering from a, a big traumatic experience that things can get better but we're going to have to put in the work. It's going to take some time and it will be a mixed bouquet of flowers. Like we talked about earlier, some good things and some leftover bad things. We just have to keep pushing towards the good things and know that the bad things will still flare up a little bit now and then. 
Thank you. Well, Jim, thank you again for making time to have this conversation with me today. I'm really grateful and and thank you for this book. As I mentioned, I really enjoyed this book and I, I think if anyone's listening, especially if they've listened this far, I think they'll enjoy it as well. So I highly recommend that you pick up your own copy, but I'm so grateful to learn vicariously. I'm certain I will never climb Everest, <laughs> but I think I've gotten <laughs> as close as I, I ever could by reading your experience. So thank you for that. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for sharing some time with me and giving me a chance to talk about some of these factors. I think you're doing some great work and we're just glad to be a small part of it today. So thanks. Well, thank you. Hey, before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you to head over to goodliving.com to check out our transformational coaching program. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today. 